The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible. And God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world. And they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential to care for it and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I love these first three chapters of Genesis. They're they're so rich and fascinating. But the problem is we very often get bogged down in the modern world in in just the arguments over whether or not all of this is meant to be literal or whether it's an allegory, whether there were supposed to be six literal days of creation or not. And the thing is, when we get into those arguments and and we focus on those, we actually miss most of what's going on. We miss most of what these three chapters are trying to teach us. And the reality is, these three chapters are probably the densest, richest part of Scripture outside of the Gospels. And even then, it's pretty close. There is so much to pull out of here, so much to learn about what God means for us to be, about what it means to be human, what it means to be man and woman, what it means to be married, what it means to be a servant of God, what God wants the world to be like. All of that you can find in just these three really short chapters. They're meant, actually, to shape our entire worldview. Everything about the way we see the world and interact with the world and the way we understand the world and other humans and God is shaped and lensed through these first three chapters. So we have to dig deep when we read through them. And they they are worth reading again and again and again. Not looking for a history lesson, 
but looking for a lesson about who we are, why we're here, and who God is. And today we're just going to focus on, well, mostly chapter 2 and just a tiny little bit of chapter 3. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So people have been trying to like pinpoint the location of Eden forever, right? There's, there's whole History Channel documentaries are, that are about it. And, and I don't know why they're on the History Channel, because there's not much history going on in those shows. But... Um, Here's the thing, right? So you've got four rivers that are named. Two of them are very real, right? The Tigris and Euphrates, they're still here. We know where they are. The rest of it, as far as we can tell, doesn't correspond to any actual location in the real world. There is, there is a spring of Gihon in Jerusalem, but there's no river that flows out from it. Eden is just this name of a place in Mesopotamia. We, we know from the fact that it mentions the Tigris and Euphrates, it's, it's supposed to point to the east of where Israel was, but the description of the location doesn't correspond to any actual place. And that's okay, because for the average Israelite reading it, it would just evoke someplace distant and inaccessible, somewhere far off to the east. And that's all that's needed. And the word Eden also means luxury or delight. And so the name of this place for an ancient Israelite reading these stories would conjure up the image of some luxurious, exotic, far away place that they could never get to. And that's kind of the point. It's this place that's bursting with life and food and luxury and pleasure, and they can't reach it. And it's got these two very strange trees in it. And the first is the tree of life. And the existence of the tree of life, ironically, teaches us something very important about death. As long as Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree, they will not die. That's why when they're kicked out of the garden, the, the, the phrasing is, they are prevented from accessing the tree of life. If they eat the fruit from that tree, they don't die which means even though God himself has breathed the breath of life into them, that does not mean they will live forever. To secure that benefit, they needed to eat the fruit from the tree of life. The Old Testament as a whole, it, it mourns early death, it mourns undeserved death, but overall it's really accepting of death when it comes in its proper time. If a person dies, having lived their life to the fullest, dying peacefully as a respected elder, joining their ancestors in the grave, the Old Testament sees nothing to mourn. There is no fear of death in the Old Testament. But this story with its tree of life suggests that death was never intended to be the end for us. We're not created as immortal beings. We're clearly designed to go through all the stages of life, including death, but from the very beginning... God offered to us a kind of transformed resurrection life. 
the tree of life points forward to the resurrection. Right from the start of the story, humans who depend on God are offered something miraculous that transforms them and removes death from the equation. But it's not something built into us. We need God for that to happen. The second tree is the more famous one, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that takes us to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So that section starts off with this kind of paradox because if you read the rest of the Bible, which I hope you've done, God pretty clearly wants us to be able to distinguish between good and evil. We actually get in quite a bit of trouble when we can't do that. It's important. So all throughout the Bible, God desires that his people would be wise. And being wise requires discerning between good and evil. And if we're supposed to be the stewards of his creation, then if we're supposed to work his garden and keep it, then presumably we need to be able to understand the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, so we can make wise and good choices. So if all that's true, and he puts this tree in the garden, and this is the tree from which you eat to get the knowledge of good and evil, and he's given us the means of receiving that knowledge and put it there and made it accessible, then why are we forbidden from taking the fruit? The answer is because it's God's gift to give. It's not something to which we have a right. Giving that knowledge is God's prerogative, not ours. And when we insist on taking it for ourselves, we're pushing our way into God's realm. We're attempting to be God. In fact, the first principle of wisdom throughout the rest of the Bible is reverence for God. Accepting what God says and living by it. And the way we therefore learn to discern good from bad is by relying on God first and foremost. In other words, if Adam and Eve really wanted wisdom, if they really wanted the knowledge of good and evil, the way to get it is by not eating from the tree. Because wisdom begins with trust and reverence for God. So the tree is put there to teach them that lesson early on. If you try to seize it for yourself, you'll only be going down the path that leads to death. But if you rely on God to grant you the gift of wisdom, that is the way to life. But Adam has a more immediate problem. He's alone. And that does not mean that he's lonely or in need of companionship. That's not what the text is trying to imply. It's that he's alone and therefore he's unable to fulfill the purpose for which God created him. So God begins by creating the animals. And it's never implied, by the way, that God doesn't know the animals won't be suitable helpers. Um, he just likes animals. And what's amazing is God actually seems kind of to, to wonder what Adam's going to name each animal. 
Now, God can determine what we're thinking. God right, sees all that's on our hearts and minds. But, but this passage and several others throughout the Old Testament tell us that God doesn't always do so. He waits to see what will happen. He waits to see what we'll choose. It implies a level of respect for human beings on God's part. He wants us to make our own decisions. He doesn't want to mess with our minds. He wants a real relationship. If God always knew what we were going to do ahead of time, if he always knew even before we did what we were going to do, then there would be a falseness to that relationship. And so God restrains himself from time to time. God gives us the privacy and the dignity we need in order to have a real relationship. But there's something else too. God sort of takes delight in letting Adam name the animals. He takes delight in bringing these creatures to Adam and letting him see them. A couple weeks ago, we took our daughter to the San Antonio Zoo for the first time. Now, she's been to the aquarium here tons of times, but she's never been to a zoo. And so uh, watching her be mesmerized by the sight of bears and tigers and giraffes and hippos and snakes and all of these amazing creatures, it, it was one of the most joyful things we've ever experienced. I loved watching her discover all the amazing creatures in the world that we live in. And Genesis 2 suggests that God feels that way about us. He could have revealed all the knowledge of biology and math and even quantum physics to Adam if he'd wanted to, right? But he didn't, right? He could have given the ancient Israelites the knowledge of things like gunpowder and, and internal combustion engines to really save them a lot of trouble, right? Imagine what would have happened if Goliath had walked out onto the battlefield and David walks up with an AR-15. That doesn't go quite the same. But then the story's not quite as interesting. Um, but he doesn't do that. And that's actually an important point when you think about it. His people face trouble time and time again, and God clearly has knowledge of how his world works that would have saved them, but he waits for people to make those discoveries on their own. He waits for them to learn those things on their own. God takes delight in watching us discover and learn about his creation. It brings him joy when we marvel at his works. It, it brings him greater joy when we begin to understand his works. And there is something about that, something in the way we are designed, that we are meant to go out into God's good world and see it and marvel at it and take delight in it and learn about it and take an active role in shaping it and guiding it and forming it in the way God wants. And so we come into verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's a lot in there. And if you took my, my class way back in the spring on human sexuality, you know that's actually one of the foundational texts for how we understand marriage and the purpose of marriage. But we're not going to talk about that this morning because that's a whole separate thing. The word Adam means human being. Up to this point, that's the word that's been used for the man we call Adam, but he hasn't actually, up to this point in the story, been assigned a gender in the Hebrew language yet. 
He's very confused. Right? He doesn't know he's a man until he meets the woman for the first time, and that also is a whole separate sermon series. Um, but now that Eve is made, the Hebrew changes. Instead of Adam, he's Ish, and she is Isha, man and woman. God doesn't form the woman from the dirt like he's done with every other living thing. She's made from the man. And this reinforces their close connection and their very unique suitability as partners. They are literally one flesh. In his wife, Adam literally finds a missing piece of himself. And by the way, nowhere in this passage, in the original language, in the Hebrew, nowhere does it use the Hebrew words for husband and wife. It always uses the Hebrew words for man and woman. And that's because the Hebrew words for husband and wife literally describe a master or owner and his property. And this passage very emphatically does not use them. It points away from that view of a hierarchy in marriage or the idea of women as property. And in fact, the entire Old Testament shies away from using the Hebrew words for husband and wife. It prefers to use man and woman, which means in the original language, the entire Hebrew canon of scripture pushes back hard against the idea of a hierarchical marriage in which the woman was property. From the very beginning, marriage was a partnership of equals. Each belongs to the other. Adam cannot fulfill his purpose in the garden without Eve by his side. She literally completes him. And so up to this point, you've got this idyllic setting. They're in the garden. They have a clear purpose. They've, the garden's been planted. The people have been put in the garden. Their job is to take care of God's garden for him, to be his image bearers in the garden, to reflect God's goodness and wisdom and order into the middle of his creation. And then we come to just the opening three verses of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And that's all we're going to read of that story today, because it's all we need. The tempter is a snake, which means the tempter is an earthly creature, not a supernatural one. The tempter is a wild creature that God has made, and that tells us right off the bat that the creatures God made are not necessarily inclined to live the kind of life that God wants them to live. Right away, it supplies you a, a, a reason for why God meant for humans to be his stewards of creation. We're meant to exercise control to bring God's order to the world. God's creations have always needed humanity to exercise control over them. And part of the tragedy of Genesis 3 is that the snake reverses the proper roles. Humanity was meant to exercise beneficent leadership over nature. And now nature is exercising maleficent leadership over humanity. And the snake is crafty or shrewd, and, and God made him that way. His craftiness is his God-given attribute, and it can be used for good or for evil. And one thing you see throughout the Old Testament is that, is that God will use wayward behavior, God will use acts of evil to fulfill his purposes. And so if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is in effect a test for Adam and Eve, now the snake becomes part of the test. 
and we'll never know what would have happened if they had passed. Maybe God would have given them access to the tree since that would have been them proving that they recognize that the first step towards wisdom is reverence for God. The New Testament looks back at this story and it sees Satan behind the actions of the snake, but he's behind the scenes. The tempter and the temptation are still natural and worldly. See, we tend to think that that temptation and evil will always come in the forms of something easily recognizable, clearly bad, clearly otherworldly. But that is not how the Old Testament shows it. Temptation and evil come in very mundane ways. Now, as someone who has always loved snakes and has had multiple pet snakes, and, and at least at one time was trying to convince you all to put snakes in the other building to control the rats, um, <laughs> we didn't do it. <laughs> Let me defend the snakes for a second. The, the reason this tempter in this story is a snake is not because snakes are evil creatures. All of God's creatures are good. The reason it's a snake is because snakes were really, really common in the religious imagery of the ancient Middle East. So the ancient Israelites reading this story would have immediately drawn the connection between the tempter in this story and the false gods worshipped by the pagan nations around them, which, as we know, were a temptation that the Israelites fell for time and time and time again. The snakes lie makes God out to be much more constraining and much less generous than he really is. The reality is God only gave them one rule. Just the one. Don't eat from that tree. That is the only rule they have. But the snake repaints the picture so that it's as if God is all constrained, as if that one rule actually constrains all of their behavior, as if that one rule holds them back from doing the one thing they want to do. Right? You all have seen or you know people or maybe you are the person who like someone tells you not to do something and, and then it's the only thing you want to do. I, I may or may not be that person. But that's what he does. He lies. He reframes the picture. And instead of an incredibly generous God who has given them unimaginable provision and generosity and only given them one rule to follow, He tells them, no, 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 God has prevented you from doing the only thing you want to do. Temptation comes packaged as believable, appealing, and reasonable lies. And we failed that test. We've tried to seize for ourselves what God had always intended as a gift. It wasn't the case that God denies us things, but rather that we aren't content to wait for him to give us good things. We want them now, and we want them on our terms. And as a result, we are incapable of fulfilling our God-given purpose in his creation. We aren't content to trust in God above all else and to rely on God and his wisdom, his provision, and his timing. And that puts us on the path that leads to death. When we talk about salvation, we often focus on the cross, but that's only part of the story. The work of Jesus on the cross deals with the sins we've committed, but it doesn't address the root of the problem we face. In Jesus, God became human. In the resurrection, the human body lived again. And in the ascension, that human body entered into heaven. Heaven is God's space. 
It's the other half of creation. The Old Testament does not picture heaven as this like faraway realm up in the skies where we all go when we die. The Old Testament pictures heaven more like the CEO's office. It's the place from which the world is run. It's the other half of creation. Heaven and earth were always designed to overlap and interlock. And one day, to be united as one. Jesus has already begun that process. He's begun reversing the damage of the fall by uniting divine nature and human nature together in one body. He has restored humanity to its original purpose by uniting us with God in the way we were always meant to be. He's gone to the very root of the problem, a broken, distorted human nature, and fixed it. In Jesus, we are able to reclaim our original purpose as God's image bearers, as his stewards in the midst of his creation, because we have a role to play. We are made to bring God's wisdom and God's order and God's love into the world he made. Genesis begins by describing that role and then by describing how we abandoned it. And the next several chapters of the book describe how everything spirals out of control when we abandon our job as God's image bearers. We're designed to do this in community with each other. We're designed to function at our best when we rely on God completely and put our trust in him. But we keep repeating the same mistake. We keep trying to seize the gifts of God for ourselves instead of receiving them with gratitude. And what we really are supposed to do is to cast all our hopes, all our trust on God and then see where he leads us. Because right from the beginning, the Bible tells us that when we are wholly reliant on God, we will have abundant life. And when we allow God to sustain us, death itself is taken out of the equation. Which means, ultimately, we can only live if we live in Christ. Life apart from Christ is a fleeting thing. We were always meant to live in Christ. We were designed in such a way that to be apart from him, we literally cannot survive. We will die. So this is the lesson from the garden. We're designed to be dependent on God. To be human means to depend on God. And so long as we are, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself. But the temptation to be independent, to reject God's provision and wisdom, and to try to claim those things for ourselves, that temptation is always there. It's always subtle. It's always appealing. It always seems reasonable. Friends, reject the lie. Depend on God and live forever. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.